0: Mm. I've always known.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you tell me when you're drunk. <laughs> what is the worst uh, social behaviour you have ever seen a comedian exhibit? The whole thing was on the big phone. It was so weird. What did she? What did she answer? Me. Fuck you. <laughs> if you guess it, I-, I will say yes. It's now time to play mm. the beautiful game. It just gets wider the further down you get? Because that man is a goddamn hero. When they go, oh, I just smashed it. I just did this gig in Dubai, I smashed it. He'll go, oh, I'm really proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Chinese. <laughs> but I would like you to visualize the comedian who you hate because you fear you're a little bit like them. To download the full recording of Comcom Pod Redacted live from the Secret Welsh Comedy Festival, as well as a whole host of other exclusive content, become a member of the inner circle at comedianscomedian.com slash donate. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. <laughs> This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today I'm talking with Ben Tarjay, who uh, I forgot to ask about the whole name thing, but there we are. Um, Ben is, as you will hear, an extremely thoughtful, uh, intuitive, curious artist. And it's really fascinating to hear someone in the comedy realm describe themselves as an artist... First and foremost, and if you're familiar with Ben's work, you can you can see, and I'm sure from the, the, the elements of it that we're going to discuss, uh, I'm sure you can hear that in every fibre of everything he's saying. This was an enormously enjoyable conversation with a very, very funny and brilliant comedian and artist. And I'm just going to flag something up as well so that you don't email me about it. Um, there is a bit quite early on in this where I gently poke Ben regarding an experience I had seeing one of his shows years ago. And um, it's the sort of thing I'm used to dealing with very robust comedians where you can go, was that was that a bit of a blag? And they go, oh, that was a bit of a blag or whatever. Um, ben is very sensitive. And no, no, I'm, I'm no, that, that's a completely wrong way to frame this. I'm not suggesting he has any problem at all. Basically, what happens is I talk to him about an aspect of an earlier show that I'd seen. He then sort of... He's absolutely not defensive. He's the opposite of defensive. He um, very beautifully goes, gosh, I suppose you're right, which in doing that then makes the thing I was saying seem a bit more like an attack. All of this will, which it wasn't, all of this will become clear in a moment. But after various issues surrounding various uh, episodes in the past, I just wanted to make absolutely clear in advance that Ben and I get on tremendously well. Uh, we began and ended this experience the firmest of friends. It's a tiny, minor thing anyway. It's just that he's such a sort of uh, uh, a, a curious and not delicate, but like... um. You're basically, most comedians are dickheads and shrug off occasional little, you know, challenges to their preconceptions of themselves. And Ben's not a dickhead. Ben is a sort of take things seriously person. So I just wanted to flag that up in advance. I may edit this bit out. I'm already regretting saying it. But the point is, you're going to absolutely love Ben Tarjay. Let's start there. Talk to me okay. about this, um, about this, this place that you're in. Talk to me about the the, the previous state to this, if you're in a transformational state at the moment.
0: Well, I suppose I'd always wanted to be an artist growing up. And my folks are quite sensible, practical people who were like, no, go and and study something that you can then get a job in. And so when I discovered stand-up as a place to make things, I thought of myself as like trying to become an artist working in comedy.
1: Okay, okay, so you were doing like almost like the opposite of the I'm going to use stand-up to get rich and famous. It was like I'm going to use stand-up to become an artist.
0: Absolutely, that's completely it. That's been the last 10 years' journey. And when you say an artist, do you
1: have a genre in mind?
0: I don't have a genre in mind, but I have a clearer self-definition now of what it is, which is uh, an artist is somebody who um, has to clearly present... Um, the experience of the human condition, and they do so creatively. So really, I look at all of us in comedy as artists, just people who make things and try to cope with the world and
1: explain the world. And uh, do, do, is there any kind of... Um, do you think that all art is equal because it all has the same value to the person, to the practitioner? Or do you think there is such a thing as good and bad art?
0: That's a tough one. I mean, I think it's just subjective. It's down to the, completely down to the viewer as to whether they think something has worth. But then it's also down to the artist to define whether what they've made or the process that it took to make that thing had value to them. I really dislike uh, classification in general. I understand that it's, it's useful, but I don't enjoy this uh, discussion about high and low art. I just think if someone's made something because they felt they needed to make something and they want to call that art, I'll accept that as art and I'll try and see it for
1: what it is to me. And so tell me, so that's, that's where you are now compared to where you, your idea of what art was initially, when you started comedy?
0: I, th- I, suppose it's, I suppose really now I feel like I'm comfortable thinking of myself as an artist who works in comedy. If I take a step back from that and simplify it, I'm just a person who enjoys making things. And the things I enjoy making, I hope, are both funny and beautiful. Because those are the two things that I enjoy seeing in other people's work. And um, there was a period of time when I was torn between am I trying to be an artist or am I now trying to be a comedian? Because that seemed like a very specific version of an artist. Like, you've got to make people laugh. That's what your work has to do.
1: Well, I was going to (laughs) say, because the idea of like, you know, art being entirely subjective, comedy of course is subjective, but it has a much uh, more vivid idea of what is a failure and what is a success on an individual nightly basis
0: absolutely and that's the thrill of it for me and that's where you know for for maybe the first 5 years that i was making work that thrill became i would say addictive in a way and i was going out and doing more stand up gigs and trying to make my stuff set up punchline even though it was visual or performative because uh, I enjoyed that specificity of brief that the audience gives you, I didn't make me laugh. But then it becomes a little bit more, um, I don't know, uh, tricky, doesn't it? Because if you make something that some people find funny and other people don't find funny, who's right? (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Who's right? And and I think that's what impresses me the most about so many stand-ups, is that so many of you become these skilled practitioners of bringing as many people in as possible before then sharing things that are a bit more like personal to you i find that
1: amazing when you say you do you mean to exclude yourself from that category
0: well i suppose i exclude myself because i i know now that i'm not a stand up comedian okay and yet I do try and make my work as clear as possible and as uh, universal as a scope as I can make it, but it is quite specific. I would say I'm at this stage an independent artist that predominantly works at festivals in fringe, you know, making fringe projects. So,
1: I mean,
0: that's quite a specific thing to do with your life.
1: Yes, so tell me then about, um, tell me about, how does that release you from certain things? Like, what are the benefits to you of thinking about yourself in that way? Because that's a really exciting, I I think certainly... You know, it's kind of a breath of fresh air on this podcast. Okay. I come from a kind of a, a, you know, I've got a degree in devised theatre from a wacky art college on a hill. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I'm, I'm super re- jealous. <laughs> yeah, right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're you, uh, already in this conversation, you have reminded me of two different people from those times, from back in whenever that Amazing. was. Um, Am
0: I right in thinking that you also have a history of working in street theatre like, say, Eddie Izzard? Yes,
1: yes. Okay. Yeah, I do. Um, although I qualify that by saying the sort of street theatre that Ezzie Izzard did, he, he, I know of two different things that he did, one of which was his take on a standard format show. He used to, I believe, uh, he used to escape from handcuffs on a nine-foot unicycle. Okay. Um, so, then, so yes, I've done that sort of thing. Um, but then he also had a very creative, more theatrical double act with a guy called Rob Ballard, um, where they would do uh, acts like The Incredible Disappearing Cornflakes, which is like pour cornflakes and milk into a bowl, put a sheet over ready, and you just hear munching. So do you know what I mean like that much yeah. more creative, interesting stuff? I aspired to that, but mostly did the other end of it—the the slightly more invertible right. base end of it.
0: Yeah. So you've had a fascinating journey of, as well of like, like whittling down this sharp point of yes. I'm going to do this thing now.
1: Yes, yes. And yes. so my this is interesting, and this actually this pertains to you because I remember seeing your show uh Ben Begins. Uh was it begins? Uh, sorry, uh Discover Bentage. I'm yes, sorry, I right. ripped right. off uh, Rhys James's show the title there. <laughs> well um, I tend to have a work in progress title and then a final
0: title. So I think I did have a it might have been It Bentage might have been something begins, like that. Yeah.
1: oh good, I'm glad, yeah. <laughs> glad, to, glad to accidentally remember that. But uh, weirdly in the in the context of street theatre, I remember watching that show which um involved from what I recall games with inflatable balls and you had kind of a staff of white hazmat suit clad people, kind of drones who would come and organise things for you. And it was as different, and we haven't really, I should say, we haven't really, for the (laughs) sake of the listener who is unaware of your work, explored what it is that you do. I mean, I I think we get the territory. But it had, you, I remember, were loaded with props, kind of prop gags. And I would particularly remember your... Uh, adeptness at um, kind of, ah, what's the word? A sort of a, a suggested gratification or a suggested realisation of a thing that then doesn't happen. You know, you're a very good kind of from 90 degrees, we think the train is going this way and bang, it it goes somewhere else. You're very good at that. You know, there's lots of and now one, two, Wednesday. You know what, <laughs> what I mean? Like you're really good at those kind of paradigms. Well, thank you. I appreciate uh, yeah, that. I, I, I think you're excellent at that. I um I remember... Th- feeling and this isn't this wasn't wholly positive at the time for me i remember thinking oh wow i am surrounded by i remember this exact sentence this was my review to my friend i enjoyed myself but i one of the things i struggled with and it's not about you it's about them i said i felt like i was surrounded by 20 year olds having their minds blown (laughs) because you were working in 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 ways in which people were like holy shit he takes them out into the street at the end you know and I remember many years into Edinburgh's and Street before, and I was like, oh, yeah, fucking dangerous. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> right. I, yeah, of course. I mean, if,
0: you've, if you're well-versed in comedy, it's harder to be surprised. Of course. And yet, I, it, I suppose in my defence, coming to comedy so late in the game, like I didn't aspire to be a comedian, but I've always loved comedy. I was not well-versed in it at all by the time I got onto the scene. So my entire context was what my contemporaries were doing. And they were trying to be stand-ups, like classic stories or polemicism, just classic stand-ups. And I chose to go in a different direction because I was more interested in other things. And so to me, it was all new and fresh. But I can imagine the fury of being... (laughs) Being a slightly older person, especially if someone's like as as well versed in 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 cross disciplinary skills as you are, being infuriated, be like, I mean, man, this guy is not original.
1: <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> I guess it's like that
0: thing of like if you're a young enemy band, yeah, then then the guys who are in the Rolling the Rolling Stones bands are more like, well. Dudes, we were doing those licks like twenty years ago.
1: Listen, I've, I've, I've <laughs> got I can't. I can't sit on this any longer because I've let you said in my defence. Of course, I'm not putting. I don't want to put you in a position where you have to defend yourself <laughs> at all. I, I, wanted. I didn't want to interrupt because I thought that would be an interesting thing to hear. I should say my, um, uh, what I now realise as a more mature enjoyer of shows and a more mature artist myself is that in that instance I was in the wrong. I was being a bad audience member and it is something upon which I try and pick myself up these days when I'm at Edinburgh, it's like going to... It's like I'm I'm arguably doing Edinburgh wrong by going every year for the last 25 years. I'm, I've am i taken... Like a reviewer. I'm not a reviewer, but I've... They're doing it wrong. You know, a reviewer isn't an audience member. They're doing it badly. They have an agenda. It's, they, they can't appreciate it like someone without an agenda. And in a similar way, when I find myself... And, and I'm addicted to the shows like yours that, that break out of the established thing. I see far more of those than I see straight stand-up shows because, I suppose, for me, that's what I want to do. So I don't want to think about it all the time. I want to see different things. Um, so I, I now remind myself when I see people, when I see 20-year-olds having their minds blown with stuff that was blowing my mind when I was 20. Of course it was. <laughs> um, and, you know, discoveries and new discoveries and rediscoveries. Um, I remind myself that I'm being a shitty audience member about it. And I, I feel, with respect to you, I should have pointed that out sooner, but I also didn't want to interrupt because I wanted to hear what your eloquent defence was.
0: Well, yeah, I suppose I've just highlighted my insecurities. that you've, <laughs> you've been very gracious. I'm probably in a similar place because I'm also an obsessive uh, consumer of art and performance, and I love it, and I try and see as much as possible. So it's probably... Harder for me to have my mind, you know, for surprise to be a, 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 a genuinely yes. new thing.
1: Yes. So to, to row back what the listener might be infuriated <laughs> themselves at, at hearing me apparently attack this incredibly <laughs> nice, gentle artist, um, your, the show of yours I saw most recently was the, I can't remember the title of it, it was the team building one.
0: Yes, imagine. Imagine there's no bentage. Imagine there's it's no bentage. Easy if you
1: try. Disgr- um. <laughs> I didn't know that was the second half of the title, <laughs> and it's beautiful. Tell me, t- tell us about that show, because and and I should I should qualify this by saying that was I was there being a thirty whatever it was year old, having my mind blown and going yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear
0: that. I suppose this might help the listener. It all comes back to seeing one show when I was 15, which was an Argentinian company's. Dance piece. Fuerza Bruta. Fuerza no, Bruta. I knew it. Fuerza I blew Fuerza my Bruta. mind. I yes. loved it. Yes. Oh my goodness! I was. I just went on a whim with a friend. Like I was. I was in a school in North London, and a friend took me to this then dilapidated. I saw roundhouse. it in Edinburgh. How
1: funny! Oh my gosh! I've, yeah.
0: I'd never seen anything like that, and I think. I have just tried to make my own version of what that made me feel oh, ever since.
1: Let's just reminisce about that <laughs> incredible. I remember at the time I thought that show, I described it to a friend that it was like aliens landing during Glastonbury. Do you know what I mean? It was, Totally. It, it, it just, what? It was just mind blowing. Yeah. People, I mean, they, they were at the absolute cutting edge of the, blowing everyone's minds in the audience. There were people running up the walls on bungee cords. There were, they manipulated the space. You remember, they're like huge silver curtains, like the 30 foot high that they kind of whizzed around the whole audience. There were people dropping down from the ceiling,
0: picking audience members up. There was like a paint fighter rave. My understanding of it was, this is what a street festival feels like. Yes, And because, let's say, if we generalise, audiences over here are, generally speaking, quite well-versed because Mm. there's a long history of theatre in Britain, but quite reserved at showing feelings. So to suddenly be picked out of the
1: audience, that's like... Yeah. Quite intense. Yeah. they were. Inc- there was the guy running on the Travelator and people... Yes. Run- and he, like, every two seconds he'd smash through another polystyrene wall that two yes. other performers yes, would yes, ram yes, against yes. him as he ran.
0: Oh, yeah, that was... that was So, yeah, they did two shows. They did De La Guada, which is the first one I saw when okay. I was 15, and Fuerza Bruto, which I think was in Edinburgh. And that was the one where... I thought that, De La
1: Guada was the name of the company? I think the company's name is
0: Villa Villa, or
1: Via Via, oh, okay,
0: okay, great. Oh, okay. But... Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's oh, God, where. That was good. So, so, for the listener, I think of myself as someone who curates comedy experiences that uh, are multi-sensory, and I completely understand how um, niche and probably like absurd that sounds, but that's what I enjoy
1: doing. And are you then? Are you using as your bungee cord and 30 foot of silver curtain you're using comic tropes.
0: I think I'm using comedy to create tension and break tension because it's the I think the best way best technique and so you can surprise an audience and a surprise is a joke. I think I'm my relationship with the audience is what's all the sort of magnificent uh, set and engineering that goes on with these high-end shows but of course because i work on the fringe i can't help but failing at that i don't have the budget yeah. i don't have so everything's diy but that also excites me that's like a, a punk thing that's when i played in bands that we just set up and play and i love that about stand-up as well someone just arrives and they share their idea and they get immediate feedback. How exciting is that? I mean, that's got to be better than art school. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah, yeah because absolutely. Because the amount of time that it takes your ideas to get in the world is drastically reduced. You know, in any creative field, say you're an architect, you've got to study seven years, then you've got to like get building permission. I'm not patient enough. That's why stand up was such an, a glorious entry point. Because it was like, there was at least a sense of like egalitarian, like, I I, I'm not great with long words, so excuse the grammar, listener. But egalitarianism, Uh,
1: like like focus on equality, yeah, yeah?
0: like stand up. At least the open mic scene, in a way, anyone can just get up there and share their story.
1: That's incredible. Absolutely. What a gift to the world. Yes, we can all exhibit. Yeah. You don't have to go on a waiting... Well, you don't have to go on a waiting list but an individual gig, but I'm yeah. sure some of them if you bring a mate. Mate yeah, that, you could sure. get your painting in the National Gallery if you brought a bunch of people <laughs> yeah. to look at it.
0: Yeah, that would be great. I'd love to do
1: that. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, yeah, I, I suppose that's probably a more helpful, like, uh, summary of what I try to do. So that show you saw, Imagine, was my attempt at trying to make a show in which I wasn't involved in the show. So I imagined a show by which I created enough activities, the outcome of which was comic, um, that the audience would self-direct with clear instruction. Of course, what you saw, I think, was just a sketch. By that, I mean like a sketchbook version, a sort of... Gotcha. Here's the first draft, because I just didn't spend enough time on that idea. But it's something I might revisit. Yes. And then the first show, Discover, the debut, was... I wanted to make my version of uh, The Wicker Man, which is a film I love. Okay. So I played this sort of gentle, eccentric authoritarian, and I roped the whole audience into this game in which we all walked outside to find something, and I disappeared. So, yeah, I suppose that might help you with where those
1: shows came from. That's, I think that's incredible. I had forgotten about Fuerza Bruta because in so many years of Edinburgh festivals, I have seen, like, it absolutely is up there, but I've just got to kind of riffle back and go, oh yeah, that one. Like, um, I, I had a, a very similar experience watching um, John Robertson do The Dark Room for the first time. Have you seen that? Yes. Where you just yes. go, oh, look, here is just... It's like um, a hollow needle tapped into someone's imagination, and it's all just spurting out of it. You <laughs> Yes.
0: Yeah, it's a very pure piece. It's like a guy who's inhabiting those choose-your-own-adventure early computer games. And it's amazing that that show can... Um, be brought to comedy audiences. That's just a really cool thing that exists now.
1: Yeah, okay. So what? let me just kind of go back over the territory we're looking at. I, to, I want to talk about beauty. One of the other things that I have in my, uh, my uh, Bentage memory banks is um, your incredible poster, that huge pink poster with you in the beard coming out of paint, coming yes. out of liquid. Was it paint? It was paint. Yeah. And I remember, see, it was it was such a perfect poster. No information, just a <laughs> just a bearded pink face with eyes closed, kind of emerging from paint. Huge, kind of the whole yes. thing. Screen. It was. Was what was it? Puce. Uh, it wasn't
0: pink or it, purple. What was it? It was. Yeah, it was pink. It was a sort of uh, sort of quite a. So that was inspired by an artist I was studying at the time that I'm still fond of, called Eve Klein, who invented a color in the '60s called. YK blue, Eve, Eve Klein blue and he painted it and he just did blue paintings. <laughs> and my, um, my, uh, my manager at the time said that one of his other acts didn't want these posters and would I like to do something with them? Amazing. And this idea really made us both giggle of what sort of idiot would buy that poster and then not tell an audience where their show was but it also played into the title of like discover so in a way in terms of like uh,
1: signage it was a signpost it was it was a perfect signpost because then when i was i saw it i wasn't quite sure it was you and didn't not I can't remember how much i knew about you at the time but then when i saw a when i was handed a flyer that had that image and some information i was like oh that's it it was yes. i mean i think you accidentally stumbled upon a fantastic and original functional campaign. Yes. Well, I mean, that's part of the show for me.
0: I think when we do posters, they're record covers. Record covers are commercial art. They're something that often remains in someone's mind for a longer period of time. And as soon as an audience member... And I think Edinburgh, in a way, from my experience of doing festivals everywhere, is quite unique for that surface time you get with an audience. You can actually flyer someone and set up that little micro-relationship whereas in many other festivals you have to, you know, get ads in or whatnot. And that for me was the beginning of the show. So I worked closely with my friend Julia Vogel, who's a brilliant uh, artist, and my other friend Mark Dean Quinn, who's a great artist. And we made this campaign together of, well, the show's called Discover, so people are looking for something. They find you in the show. At the end of the show, you disappear, and they know nothing about you, which was a subversion, a knowing subversion, of the debut Edinburgh Hour, which is... This
1: is where I come from. I've been named goodnight. Yes. Like, yeah, right, absolutely. So
0: um, we had all these choices, like we had no press that year. We didn't have a PR that year. We tried to keep it... um, quite managed as an experience that people could come to and what I've always wanted audiences to do and I feel like I give them the room to do this is think of this what you want to think of it in the same way that if I go to look at a painting usually I don't experience the painter standing next to it going fuck you, your thoughts are wrong. Sure. <laughs> or like the painter's hype man. <laughs> <laughs> but I would love that. Maybe that would be a good piece of art, you know. Hype man, hype people for a painting. Yeah, that's, that's not a bad done. idea. <laughs>
1: it's great. I'll let you know well, when I get into the RA. Mate, if we stumble you upon anything good, we'll cut it like out to. and we'll work on this as a <laughs> yeah, separate okay. project. I love it. A hype man for a painting at a bringer gallery. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah, we've had a lot of fun doing these um, campaigns around. So the, the the third show that I made, Imagine, which you came to see, um, Mark came up with this brilliant idea of, well, let's not give out any flyers. The flyers are imaginary. We'll just give out a paper bag and tell people to put their imaginary flyers in it. But the paper bag had all the details of the show on. Okay, yeah. So that was another fun thing. And then the show that I did, which was my second show called Hooray, where I improvised you, the show the image was with you an audience. The flowers in a
1: meadow. Yes, it? that's right, yeah.
0: yeah. It was in a Mexican graveyard that was taken by uh, another great artist, uh, Steph Brocci, um, oh, yeah. and uh, that show was all improvised with the audience. So Mark was like, well, the flyer should have some improvisation element in it. So we just put an arrow on it and underneath the arrow it said, follow this,
1: To the show, so that they got to choose the direction. So, this is Ben. Fascinating to speak to him. You can hear the delight in my voice, I think, as we talk about things that we don't normally get to talk about on this podcast. Any minute now, someone's going to use the word intertextuality. Anyway. This is, uh, what can I say to you? Oh yes, so Splosh. We talk a little tiny bit about Splosh, which is uh, Ben's forthcoming Edinburgh show. Do get along and see that. I'm going to be uh, whizzing out lots of uh, interviews with people who are on their way up to Edinburgh at the moment. Sophie Willen is coming up next week. Anuvab Pal uh, is one to look out for as well. He's uh, apparently now had his... Uh, Edinburgh run via Soho Theatre confirmed and um, so I was very excited to see that in one of the the various launches that are happening at the moment and I tell you what we need to do is um, we need to organise and formalise a date for spreadsheet day. If you're a, a hardcore committed uh, connector with this show on social media you'll know that every year before Edinburgh once the Fringe Guide has come out um, several of you like to and me we all like to work out a big spreadsheet particularly people who are going to the festival for sort of three to five days but equally, there's a guy out there, my friend Pedro, he bangs down a schedule for every single day, comes for a month and sees 11 shows a day. So at whatever stage uh, of that, let's call it a spectrum, you're on, um, then uh, I'm, I'm interested, when's that? When's the date? We should choose the date for hashtag spreadsheet day because it was really fun on Twitter last year. I would People would tweet their spreadsheets at me and I would retweet them and it's quite a good way of celebrating our comedy nerdiness and at the same time you know, you might see someone else's spreadsheet and go, oh, I didn't even know that person was going. So that's a fun thing to do. But let's formalise that. Talk to me about that on the Facebook group and we'll um, we'll sort something out about that. Um, thanks as ever to everyone that's been signing up for the private podcast. If you've got more ideas of the sorts of things you'd like to see on that, at the moment we've got me um, uh, being interviewed by you, members of the community, about whatever subject you wish. Uh, we've got uh, extra content from the shows. We might at some point, when I get round to talking to Ben about how he could make an unbreakable 20 from his existing stuff. We'll probably have that chat via Skype and then podcast that. Um, No promises. That's a a thing we hope to get around to soon. Um, But there's all sorts of things, including uh, comedy critique, where um, newer acts send in uh, five to ten minutes of their sets. Five-ish is fine. Um, and uh, and then I play it on a little private mini podcast and then we all discuss it and then uh, the next week I play it again with my feedback and the curated feedback of other members of the ComCom community or Com community, or even Community, who knows. So um, if you are a new act and you'd like to be submitted for that then get in touch with me info at comedianscomedian.com uh, or, or, or indeed... Um, you can do that via the Workspace app that you get access to when we when you join the private podcast. All of this you can do at comedianscomedian.com slash donate. But if you can think of anything, if you're ex- an existing member and you can think of more stuff you'd like to see, any other ideas, I will consider anything because I'm really enjoying having this like additional secret underground railroad of sort of mega nerdiness. So if, uh, if you'd like to be part of that, go to comedianscomedian.com slash donate or get in touch, info at com. That will do for now. My tour continues. Um, uh, Bristol was amazing. Bath was small but perfectly formed. Uh, Caution was great fun. Uh, Northampton, the Royal and Derngate in Northampton. Gosh, guys, wasn't that great? Wasn't that such a lovely, fun show? That was brilliant. Uh, Warwick Arts Centre was lovely. And I've just come back from Shrewsbury, from Henry Tudor House, where I sold two more tickets than last time. And um, let's hope they were Richard and Janice who were sat down the front. Um, Janice grassing up Richard's former life as a policeman let's formalise that on the podcast as well Um, really really good fun I've been enjoying it enormously comedianscomedia.com slash tour for all of the shows that you would like to uh, to, uh, all of the shows the one show and all of the opportunities to see that show when you uh, go to the website and find out where I am near you the North Western Scotland coming up soon and also Southampton Never, never done a show there before. Let's hope that sells really well. Haven't looked at the figures for that. Let's assume it's selling really well. Southampton. Who lives there? If that's you, come and see the show right now. Back to Ben Tarjay. Do you do you feel that you are operating within a uh, uh, what's the word? What's the word within a. Um... Like, are there people you've seen at Edinburgh in the past who are inspiring you? What's the word for that? You know, operating within a something. I forget the terminology. Not a genre, but are you part of a sort of a um, not ancestral? What's the word? So, like what's my heritage? Yeah, well, yeah, within, well, yeah, kind of like a, an artistic heritage. These ideas are so good; it's kind of hard to like. They they make up fringe festival. Let's look. Like, we're talking about Edinburgh. Let's yeah, you know, yeah specifically of Edinburgh they make up some of the lifeblood of Edinburgh in a way in which... It's almost like these are some of the things that we all fear Edinburgh is losing or will lose. Right. Or, do you know what I mean? They, 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 there's a lineage yeah. of this kind of stuff. So did you, besides Fuerza Bruta, were there other kind of thing... Because that wasn't a comedy show. It wasn't, no. Were there other comics that inspired you in how far they stepped out of the norm?
0: That's a really good question. <laughs> I, I completely agree that whether we think we're original or not when we start, we are from a heritage, as we've you know touched upon. Like, In a way, only our take on an idea is fresh and not necessarily where it comes from. Um, I suppose it's this thing. I've found art funny, and I've also found comedy artful, and that's just something that's inherent in me. So when I was 12 years old, just around the back of my house was this art gallery, which was free with loads of paintings of René Magritte. And I found his paintings both beautiful because of the technique, but also really funny because of the juxtaposition of image. Can and you I'm give
1: just... me, I don't know his work very well. Can you? Give um, me... Oh, Magritte so... has in the bowler hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy. Yeah,
0: that guy. And so all my influences early doors were artists from multiple like multiple sort of medias. Um, but there was comedy I loved as well. And I guess the, maybe the most honest answer is my attitude is when I see something is I can learn from it. And so I see as much as possible and I try to find something that I like in everything. That's not very helpful, is it? <laughs> um, but there are artists, or rather there are comedians who I think work in that comedy art crossover like Simon Munry or um, Andy Kaufman or Steve Martin who people in reviews have said well that's my lineage so maybe it's down to the audience to tell me what my lineage is and that's sure. what I've been told okay oh you work you sort of oh, you're to, in that kind yeah, of territory. yeah
1: yeah
0: yeah but like I said, when I go to see something, like if I come to see your show, I, don't, I try not to come into one of your shows and go, I'm going to watch a stand-up. Sure. I try and come and go, what's Stuart gonna tell me about what he's experiencing now? And whatever form it takes on, I just accept it. Is, is
1: that, is that, does that help at all? <laughs> yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. I'm thinking my slightly misty-eyed gaze there was because I'm thinking I aspire to that. I aspire to that kind of openness, that intellectual openness. And I think what I said before about being a sometimes feeling like a bad audience member, I bring an awful lot of my own shit to things. People in the past have asked me to direct their shows and I've only, I have only ever uh, tried it once and it was an enjoyable experience. But I always think the, the danger in directing someone's show is that you... The danger for me directing someone's show is that I would try to... I wouldn't be able to stop trying to turn it into what I wanted to see yes. as opposed to helping it be what they want to be. I think there's a big difference between those things. Yes. And I suppose I'm just feeling sentimental about the artistic aspirations of my youth. When I started in comedy, I thought I would be like Simon Munnery because he is my favourite comic. I go and see him three or four times a year at the Edinburgh Festival and um, and I, I, I just continue to consider him genuinely a genius. Mm. And... Um, and then it, it was like a really tough, tough moment in like mirth control Plymouth, you know, like three years in going I, the bits of mine that are getting a laugh. are not the clever highfalutin <laughs> stuff. And I, I suppose I necessarily kind of ended up going, well, I want to be a success at this. I want to be a financial success, success at this. So I will give up certain glorious Pretensions in order to make it work, and I suppose listening to you, I'm like, oh, Ben didn't give up, you didn't compromise.
0: Well, I don't know if that's true. I know that it might look like that. Oh, just a just a quick note. I would love to be doing like Mirth Control Portsmouth or <laughs> the Geek Club because genuinely, like some of the early gigs I saw in stand up. The first live gig I ever went to was quite like uh, I think UCL. Headliner, Michael McIntyre, opened by Reginald D. Hunter. I was obsessed with Eddie Izzard, Bill Hicks, you know, I, uh, I just, I love stand up and there was a time a few years ago, not, not even, two, yeah, maybe three or four years ago where I was hitting this wall of, it doesn't matter what I try and make, I can't seem to be able to make it sort of
1: stand up enough.
0: For to, it be, it to be to be accepted, commercially to be, acceptable yeah, to, to com- do a twenty-minute
1: spot for a hundred and fifty quid and get the money in your pocket. Yeah, and I suppose I wanted
0: that because I wanted that job, as well as being able to do these,
1: yes. highfalutin art shows. Okay. Um, let's talk about that because now my instinct is immediately to go. Oh, I. I mean, let's just turn this off, and I. I. <laughs> I, I can. I'm sure I could. No, not me because I'm me, but I'm sure anyone could. Could help you repackage what you do in order to to make it... Like, surely, from all of your... I've seen you do stuff that we could string together. Not I mean string together. I mean, we could compose yeah. such that it was an unbreakable Club 20.
0: I would love that. Let's do that. Let's I mean, do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, when I started out, because I was... My contemporaries um, were were Nish Kumar and Ed Gamble and uh, Liam Williams and the guys in the footlights and the Dharma Review, And I was looking at them going, I love this and I sort of want to do, I want to be able to do what you do, but I'm more interested in other ways of expressing this. And then I discovered that I was just naturally, sort of innately good at visual stuff. And... So I think my work was leaner on purpose because I did give myself that brief of, this has got to result in a laugh. And so that first show was ostensibly the most comedy show I've made because it was prop gag after prop gag after prop gag. Lots and lots of content. Yeah, locked into uh, a character, a persona, which made sense in the sort of um, experiential narrative of of the show. And off the back of that, I did get a couple of years of club work, you know, that was really fun. And it was what I was aiming for. But ultimately, I discovered the solitude of that life wasn't something I, I coped with well at that time. I preferred working in a small team, building something that was grand, like bigger in terms of time. And I just had to make that choice of, well, 50% of the gigs you're doing at the moment, either the promoter hates you afterwards or the audience hates you. (laughs) And 50% of them, you're seen as something that was refreshing and wild and wonderful. And that extremity of the two was just not a good headspace for me to constantly arrive at work in of How's this gonna go? And I just think it was, you know, that's exciting. I love going down to the, Up the Creek or late in life when there's a mixed bill of, you know, the wonderful breadth that, we're, that we have in comedy in Britain. I love that. That's my Honestly, my favorite thing is like Sunday special Up the Creek. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I just think I had to make that choice of, okay, this is hurting a bit too much too often, and I'm gonna try to become someone who focuses on projects and long-form shows. And that's like a whole different kettle of
1: fish commercially. That's a very different yeah, lifestyle, absolutely. isn't it? Absolutely. If you if you nail that, you could one of the one like one of the the um, the places I think that can exist is. With Me with my kind of, you know, one eye, my business eye, if you like, going, oh, well, so a sensible thing for you to do would be to make shows and sell them to festivals and and make that your commercial thing. I guess that would mean in the short term going to Australia several times and doing all the way around that. Have you you done those? Have you done those kind of festivals? I
0: have done, I, I did a year out in Australia and New Zealand. Okay. And that's something that I would aspire to do in the future. I think for, to, to make that viable, you have to do,
1: you have to make a sort of robust hit yeah. creative show. Yes, and it has to be commercial. Yes. You can't be fannying around with a poster that doesn't have any details on exactly. it. Exactly, And that yes. might, so, so that doesn't appeal to you, that aspect of it doesn't appeal to you.
0: It, what appeals to me, I suppose, is a creative challenge. What I find tough is investing the amount of time And emotional energy into my work as, as I suppose we have to do in this, in this game. And then the risk, the other side is, oh, I'm, I'm back at my a billion day jobs because I just lost a ton of cash. Yeah. And yet you need a big Dickensian (laughs) sponsor. That's what you need. I I think it just takes time to get really good at something. And I think it takes time to build your audience. And I think it takes time to become an effective administrator of that audience. And that's a large part of the job, isn't it? And I'm now comfortable at going, okay, I love doing this. If I can make a show every year and get better incrementally at doing it, eventually the probability is I'll make something that I can tour around the world and the risk is less. And I'd love to do that. And the other thing I'm also really interested in doing is making shows and projects and pieces of art for spaces and getting commissions to do that. And that's what I've done over the past uh, two years now. Okay. Like I've made interactive installations. Tell I've... me about
1: some of those. I'm, I'm very much less familiar <laughs> with those and I'd so, love to well, know what kind of thing we're talking about.
0: In February of this year, I did a project for the London Brain Project. They're a group of leading neuroscientists who each year try to unpack for the public uh, a mental health condition. This year they chose anxiety. So they asked me to pitch them a workshop which would involve working with neuroscientists and people who'd been diagnosed with various anxieties to explore anxiety through art. And I made a workshop, and off the back of that, they commissioned me to make an interactive installation. So I looked at the relationship between tension and release. And for me, release is physical physically embodied by sanctuary in my life that's a space that i've made and and so i and then for the anxiety i made these tension trees which were just these massive plumes of helium balloons which people could attach their anxieties on labels to and after doing that after offloading they could then walk over to the sanctuary space which was a quieter softer space and then share what they do to sort of cope and calm down so that was like a recent
1: uh installation of me okay yeah (laughs) okay because i mean as you started describing that i thought i can't tell you how to make a a club 20 it would destroy (laughs) this wonderful artist in front you know what i mean but i but well i touching on something you
0: said earlier about directing and and uh club 20s and things, being a club comedian, I I guess is part profession and part craft. Like it's a craft that again takes years, like learning how to read an audience, learning how to like pitch material, et cetera, et cetera. And I'd love to be able to do that. And I suppose it's that thing of just investing time in it and what you eventually decide to invest time in. And I guess I've accepted reluctantly the older I get, I'm having to be more specific with my choices. Yes. Yes, isn't it? Go on. But maybe, you know, you can find your way back to something. So Nick Helm said this thing to me a few years ago where he was like, "Um, every hour show that's made, you might find five minutes of material that you can then road test in clubs. So say you make five hours, maybe you've got a 20 in there somehow. So I do still do gigs and I still do get paid to do gigs. I mean, it's far more on the sort of, we need a weirdo. Yeah, sure. He's he's got a bankable fifteen. Yep, and a crazy five minutes at the top. <laughs> you know, if they're not on board by ten, he can we're get going out. down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's where I am now. Have you, for sure. Do,
1: do you? It's really funny to hear you put it in those terms. Do you? And to what extent do you think that is a, a genuine reflection of people's booking policy? And to what extent is that a reflection of what you, how you think people see you? I think I think it is um,
0: maybe a bit of both. But, for example, recently I've written for two people's TV shows as part of a writer's room in which I was clearly employed to be, let's have a weird idea, let's have an absurd approach, let's do something out of the box. Yes. And someone was there for just, you know, like, gag, gag, gag. Here's the gag and, person. Yeah. yeah, right. And that was, those experiences have been just so empowering of... Oh, I can just be me. Can you talk to me about what show that was or does that um, need to remain? <laughs> I don't think, uh, one of them was a game show. Okay. So I guess some it it's a show where on the surface it's quite conventional, mm-hmm. but they want that kind of Vic and Bob aesthetic. Okay. And another one was a talk show, but it's a hidden prank show. Okay. So the talk show aspect is really, I guess, quite reserved uh-huh. and the Show element is a bit more like Nathan for you, where it's like sure. a completely ridiculous premise comes in but is executed beautifully. And
1: that was a very empowering space for you to be in because you are being given free reign to be the weirdo. Yeah, and there's no pressure to come up with a joke, yeah. like you know, a societally <laughs> yeah, acceptable yeah, yeah. joke. Yeah, um, and instead they just go right. And at this point, something weird can happen, and you can look up and go. Chainsaw or a mattress or yeah. whatever occurs Absol- to you. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, I mean, one of them, the, the greatest thing was that I got to work with Spencer Jones, whose work I love. Yes. And it was just like us playing like table tennis with how yeah. can we outweird each other's idea. But, but I don't, I should probably caveat that by saying I don't think of myself as a weirdo, but I understand why everyone sees me as one. Sure. I, I come from a very eccentric family and a very like creative family. And I'm, but I'm not sure, I don't find it healthy to think of myself as weird. (laughs) No, right,
1: okay, okay. And it does sound like there is, That's the second kind of uh, brief tangent into mental health and your quite kind of practical approach to it. I suppose that's something that to me sounds uh, like you have learnt well how to protect yourself, which is something many of us don't learn or learn well. Well, maybe it's at the heart of all
0: creative people. I find that we're very sensitive. Um, And I certainly can take things to heart quite quickly. And it's another skill that we have to learn, maybe, of getting the logic in there or just skilling up on techniques to distance your emotions from the action. It's taken me a long time to learn that. You know, certainly early on when I had a rough gig, I'd beat myself up about it all week, and I'd go out and try and do three more gigs that week, irrelevant of how stacked the week was, to sort of like prove to myself, no, 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 you can be
1: good at this. Isn't that so? It's taken a long time. It's it's for an artist, for someone who let's say self identifies as an artist. Absolutely. I, I think most artists get a fucking tangible thing they can look at and go, Well, I'm definitely an artist. Really? What, it's a much harder path to go, my art is in itself ethereal and yes. you know, and even if it definitely worked last night and I felt incredible about it, I can I can do it the exact same thing again tonight and feel like, Oh, I'm not an artist. It's like today my, my sculpture might have melted.
0: Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. That was the dangerous um early doors. I guess, attached, unhealthy attachment I, was, I had with my work. And yeah, I mean, mental health has been something that has defined the last eight years of my life and has massively impacted the work I've made and the work that I've had to make. There were really wonderful offers that came in after my debut show. It was successful at the Fringe in, conve- in very conventional terms. And I was burnt out by the end of 2013 and just could not accept opportunities. And that was heartbreaking because I'd worked for them, but I knew that to put myself in that space, the way that I was approaching my work, which was obsessively and relentlessly because I was trying to constantly prove to myself and self-validate that I was an artist um, that was really dangerous. And so I started to make these shows which were openly, like, exploratory and partly improvised and working massively with the audience. And the onus wasn't on the material. It was on my skill to uh, set up a healthy relationship with the audience where they wanted to give and also I wanted to give and we could make something in between.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, yeah. I I always feel an instinct on covering mental health to kind of go deeper into it and in an attempt to find out what things you have found most useful, but at the same time, for someone who says that it has, you know, characterised your work of the last eight years, and I think there have certainly been periods of my own creative career when I've my like career, um, when it has underpinned. I remember trying to write a show, I made a show in 2011 about anxiety and it was the most painful and negative process because I would sit and write about my anxiety and in the process I'd make myself feel awful and then at the end it wouldn't be funny. You know, at the end of that day I'd go, I've made myself unhappy for nothing again and I have to do that every day. Jesus Christ.
0: Yes. I suppose we all have to figure out for ourselves like how to make work about things that we want to cope with but also cope whilst doing that. So my last show was about creative destruction. It was a aesthetically a 70s game show, but my experiences of self-destruction were revealed throughout it. And when I started making the show, I didn't feel I had the skill to lead an audience responsibly through the journey I'd been on. And it made me, Like you, like incredibly, um, well, it made me really sad. I felt like I was failing myself for making this uh, show that would heal me. But I discovered through that this invaluable thing, which I've taken into the show I'm making at the moment, which is to trust that the subconscious is doing some of the work. So just make something that I think is going to be fun to make and trust that the message and the thing that I'm trying to, like, uh, reconcile with in my life is somehow being worked through partly in that
1: show. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I, 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 think I try to do that more now. Or rather, I, I, I not try, I untry to have meaning. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Because um, Because having done it for a while and having tried for a long time to make things that are meaningful... I'm in a similar place in terms of, no, I'm just going to make some things and you deal with the meaning. Like, I'll know what it means to me and that doesn't necessarily mean the same thing to you. I, it does require a certain amount of dexterity when describing it in marketing terms. Um, because you don't want to pin it down to a thing that then, well, next week I'll discover it isn't about that, you know. Um, I suppose, is, is, there, is that, the, does that, have you ended up then at the same place? as a conventional stand-up comedian who doesn't worry about meaning? I don't know. (laughs) As I've never been one, I'm not sure I
0: can answer that because I still feel like when it comes to making my own work, I'm careful to isolate myself with the things that I'm interested with so that I don't start comparing myself to what my contemporaries are making and feeling um, sort of awash with uh, insecurity over that. But this whole, you know, whatever we're touching upon here, for me, that moment where you realize that what you are making naturally and the skills that you are naturally good at are different to what you aspire to make and the work that your heroes are making, and embracing the loneliness that I feel confronted by where I have to embrace what's mine as opposed to what I want to be mine, is when I, it takes a lot of bravery, and it's, I immediately feel myself improve, and I see it in other people too, For example, I'm part of a collective called Weirdos, a fellow comedian, uh, John Kearns, we all found him funny for years. And he would come on stage and he would do these surreal stories about being on the Titanic and getting his tongue stuck to the iceberg because he tried to lick it or something. The ideas were funny and his onstage manners were funny something wasn't working. And I'm not sure who he was aspiring to be, but it felt like, oh, this, this, is, a sort of, this is a bit like Izzard or a bit like Tony Law, like a sort of uh, surreal story. And then I kid you not, it's like the day he put on that monk's wig and teeth and just told us about how pissed off he was about minor, th- minor infractions in his life. It was like the comic was born. Yeah. And, he, and he embraced that and it owned it and has become this performer that I always look to for, I suppose, like, um, as an example of go and do what you do. Because you can't help but not eventually be that.
1: So with your own work, what sorts of things were you... Doing out of aspiration rather than truth that you have managed to stop doing?
0: I think when I started, and it might have just been like stage fright, I was trying to be quite an obtuse, unreadable, confrontational, slow-burning, tension-inducing character. And that was based on seeing things like Johnny Vegas and being so excited by that or Zach Galifianakis and just loving that um, I guess like contentious atmosphere they bring and I've now become, I do inhabit personas for each show but I choose them quite carefully and I think I've just slowly become a lot less insecure about being kinder and softer and maybe a bit more friendly and measured in delivering
1: the work. And did it solve, did, did, those, did that kind of hardness solve a problem for you? Like that, that kind of thing that you've dropped, that kind of, I, I sort of, re- I feel like I recognise it from half-remembered bits of your earlier work, the, the kind of deliberate manipulation of tension. Was it purely an artistic choice or was it protecting you It
0: protected me, absolutely. It was an artistic choice at the time because I was obsessed with uh, benevolent dictatorship and I wanted to make a show in which I was a benevolent dictator. So I was always manipulating the audience. Everything was a game. Everything was... uh, You know, I I know why I was doing that. Um, I was working through some familial is that the right word familial relationships mm. i was playing a character that exists in my family mm. and sort of empowering myself by overcoming my
1: fear of them by stepping into their shoes okay uh, a benevolent dictator yeah. in your family. i mean obviously i want to know more about that <laughs> but i don't want to ask you to kind of um, go too deep in kind of personal revelation well, I Well,
0: but in in day to day life, you know, I do have like a. I can have. Like, I suppose most people I've encountered in life, like a. I can. Overcompensate for things that I feel overwhelming, and I can try and control my immediate environment. So there is like a sort of a, an authoritarian streak, certainly, but really, I'm quite a sort of heads in the cloud like daydreamer, pottering about, looking at the sky and appreciating the fact that green leaves on trees, you know, that's, so I'm much more comfortable being that human, yes. being far more the child that I am on stage and not feeling so insecure that my work isn't like, uh, some sort of intellectual monolith. <laughs>
1: Tell me if this is a a thing you'd prefer not to talk about. I read in a review something that the the way they put it suggested you'd said it accidentally, and so I don't know if it's kind of fit for discussion. It was about coming from a military family.
0: Um, there, yeah, there have been people in my family in the military, not 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 so recently. Um, I had a very itinerant lifestyle growing up, so I went lived in many places, many countries went to many, many different types of school. And one of the schools I went to was an ex-Navy school. Okay. And it was actually the school I was happiest at and the school that was the most um, compassionate towards its students because the entire ethos was do what you're good at and we'll, we'll invest our time in that. And everything, you know, art isn't better than sport. Sport isn't better than academics.
1: God, that sounds great. And
0: yet at the same time, it was like disciplinarian like really pff, yeah there was no messing around okay so actually that structure was quite useful yeah and i, <laughs> and I took that structure and put it into that show that you came to the origin yes. show
1: yes yeah why why are you moving around so much
0: um my dad's a chemical engineer my mum's an archaeologist so their work took them everywhere
1: Fucking
0: hell. yeah i mean they're they've chosen to Quite different. When we get to work on your club
1: Twitter. <laughs> so, as the son of a chemical engineer and an archaeologist, joke who combines <laughs> those yeah. concepts. Yeah. yeah, wow, okay. So you were, were you in kind of international schools? Yes, I've, I think I've done it all now. I, th- I did
0: uh, a Montessori school. I went to uh, a school in the Netherlands in which I was the only English kid, or I think my brother and I were the only English kids, so we were uh, bilingual for years and I self-identified as Dutch for a long time despite them being like uh, you're English yeah and weirdly none of my family's English none of us are English okay so and I've been to um international schools I've been I've I, I did my A-levels at a private school and I went to uh like a, a sort of a comprehensive in the states and there was a lot of home homeschooling so I've sort of had, had the entire
1: range. God. And the Navy school was, you found the most compassionate?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because of this, I mean, it, st- I mean, it's <laughs> it you- was founded by, I think the school was founded by a headmaster who was in the Navy, and then the next headmaster was in the Navy, and then the next one was in the Navy. So they, the whole school was set up like it was a ship, like drills and squads and. Wow. Yeah. But Whoa. at the same time, it was like, Probably oh, if you don't a- want to play football, just go climb a tree.
1: Yeah, but just do it, fa- get timing, do it fast. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah totally. Up and down, up and,
0: down. <laughs> and so, there so in my private life, I'm quite sort of anti-authoritarian. Sure. Like, I'm quite like, uh, actually, I don't want to have to get up now. <laughs> Which I've had to rail against, like, yeah. you know, in the, uh, to, be, to be a professional. That's not, doesn't work at all.
1: <laughs> it, one might kind of uh, casually draw, or one might casually suggest,